Right, thanks, Pastor John. Well, uh, let me uh, also welcome you to Redemption Hill. Uh, so glad you can join us this morning. And uh, man, we had a great week with soccer nights. So, uh, so thankful for everyone who participated, all the parents, all the, the players and the, our volunteers, just an amazing job. So um, if you volunteered in any way, shape or form for soccer nights, could you just stand up real quick? Just wanna, want everyone to see what an amazing, thank you. Let's give it up for all of our volunteers. And, uh, and this number only scratches the surface. Thanks, you can have a seat. Uh, this, that, that number only scratches the surface of, we had over 250 unique kids, I believe. Uh, Pastor John said we had over 150 volunteers, unique volunteers that served at some point during the week. Uh, so just amazing. And I'd also like to thank uh, Pastor John Chastain. He, he takes the lead for us in soccer nights. Makes a lot of sacrifice throughout the year to make it happen. So let's give it up for Pastor John, all his hard work. Hope you can hear that wherever you are. Pastor Jack always doing a lap, coming back in. Well, uh, yeah, great, great week. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 18 today, uh, starting in verse 1. And if you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's page 927, all right? Page 927. And uh, we really did have an amazing week at Soccer Nights. You can see this, uh, this picture here, uh, uh, one of the pictures of uh, the kids playing um, in... Uh, and I think we have it. Maybe we don't. Maybe, maybe there's a pastor fail. Maybe I forgot to put it on the PowerPoint. Um, but anyway, the kids just had an amazing time. Uh, interact. There it is. Boom. Uh, playing. And uh, what I love to see as a parent and as someone who just loves kids is how a kid may come to soccer nights simply because, I hope this wasn't your kid, but if it was your kid, you can really identify with me. Okay? Simply because... A parent or a grandparent or a guardian just, like, drag them to soccer nights. You know what I'm saying? I mean, some of the coaches, anyone have, like, that player, that young boy or girl on your team Monday night, Tuesday night, you know? But, but what happens is they, they start to, you know, scream out the soccer nights chants, and they start doing the soccer nights dance, you know? Come on, Matthew, where am I at? Huh, that surfing right there? Come on now, dude. So, um, and, 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 you know, they get to know their teammates, and they get to know their coaches, and then all of the sudden, they're telling their parents, I can't wait to go back to soccer nights. And they start asking, is soccer nights next week too, right? And so it's just beautiful to see how God, just the, the, the confidence of a child can grow through those uh, experiences. And then what I also love is just how the competitive juices start to flow the, the more that they are involved in the week, you know? So it's just like they're learning how to dribble, they're learning how to pass, they're learning how to control the ball, they're learning how to shoot, you know? Um, and, and then all of a sudden they get to the scrimmages and these kids want to win the game, you know? It's like even when I went to pick up my kids, Parker and Kessid from Coach Jake and Coach Gernsley, you know, usually the first thing they were telling me was, you know, Tuesday night for Kessid, it was... We tied one and lost one. And you can just kind of see the disappointment in her face. Like, hey, keep, keep working hard. You guys will win tomorrow night, you know. And then Wednesday night is like, we lost one and we won one, you know. And, and, then, and, then, and then Thursday night, we won two and we lost one, you know. So it's like you can see how they really want to win. Did we have any kids, like, in tears because they lost a scrimmage this week? Coaches, I'm seeing, yeah, seeing a couple hands. I mean, just, you know, hey, we, we all long for victory, right? And I want you to think about this. This is true whether a child is 
five or whether an adult is 35. It's true whether a child is eight or whether you are 68. We all long for victory. We all want to be a part of, of something victorious. And But I want to ask you a question this morning. With, with that idea in mind, I want, you, I want to ask you two questions, related questions. How would you live your life if you knew you could not lose? How would you live your life if perpetual victory was on the horizon? Would that, would that change the way you approach your day? Would it change the decisions that you make? You see, what we have here in Acts chapter 18 is God, uh, you know, maybe not quite that strongly, okay, but, 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 but to a large degree, he is, for this season in Paul's life, he is giving him a vision of victory, and that vision of victory then compels Paul to keep going in the work that God had assigned him to do, all right? So I want you to see this from Acts chapter 18, the, the, that, 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 that encouragement and that vision comes in verses 9 and 10, but we're going to read all 17 verses here at the beginning of, of Acts 18. So here we go. Uh, you can follow along if you uh, want to listen carefully, if you don't have your Bible open. Here, here's what it says. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. 
But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. What we have here in Acts chapter 18 is Paul continuing the mission God had given him to make Jesus known all over the world. We found him last week, as Pastor Peter shared with us, in Athens, and now he has traveled 50 miles west to the city of Corinth, a very strategic city as well. Now, Corinth was also a capital city. It was the capital of Achaia. It boasted a huge population of roughly 200,000 people, okay, and like 2,000 years ago, that would have just been massive, all right, much larger than Boston by comparison. Um, It also was a center of commerce because it was located on an isthmus with ships accessible by the Aegean and the Adriatic Sea. But not only that, Corinth was a highly immoral city, all right? Um, I don't want to call you out today, but, but if anyone is from Lynn, Anyone from Lynn? Pastor Reddy, I knew Pastor Reddy was going to own that. All right? Pastor Reddy grew up in Lynn. He can tell you some story. You know there's a slogan about the city of Lynn right here in greater Boston. Have you heard it? Lynn, Lynn. The city of Sam. Everybody say it. The way you, you never come out the way you came in. Is that close enough? Thank you. All right. Uh, so, 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 so there was also a slogan about Corinth, that like when people were living, just kind of living it up without a moral compass, people would say they are living like a Corinthian. This is like throwing caution to the wind, living a a very hedonistic, like spending money on whatever. Um, Scholars tell us that uh, every night 1,000 prostitutes would descend the Acro-Corinth to ply their trade in the worship of Aphrodite, Okay. So this is like sexual immorality was rampant in the city, and people were just living however they wanted to live without regard for any accountable standard like Paul was proclaiming about God. And so it was in this context that Paul arrives, and he followed his usual pattern. If you've, if you've uh, maybe read Acts before, you've been with us in this In Boston As in Heaven series, you know that Paul would go in and he would first go to the Jewish synagogue where people already had this theistic worldview and, and this belief that the Messiah of the, the, the deliverer of the Jews was going to come one day. And so now Paul is showing up and saying, like, the Messiah is here. The Christ, his name is Jesus. Believe in him. Trust in him. And you can have this right relationship with God again. And he did that until, once again, he's opposed by the Jews, and and then he turns his attention to non-Jews, Gentiles. And what Paul assumes, like in the other stories, is that the Jews are going to get so heated, perhaps they're going to incite a riot again like they did in Thessalonica, and then like they did in Berea. But what Paul sees is, is is a surprising vision from God, where God in verses 9 and 10 says this to Paul. Let's look at it again. It's so important. We're going to really focus here this morning. He says to Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city 
who are my people. And after Paul hears this, he says, says that he stayed in the city a year and six months. 18 months, Paul continues teaching people about Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is just focus in on these words from God to Paul and draw just a couple of very ultra-simple truths for us to consider as we think about living out God's mission in our own city of Boston, all right? The first truth is this, all right? Number one, God's got you. How about that? God's got you. And, And what that means is God has you, all right? If you are in Christ, God has you in his hands. You belong to him. You are loved by God. God has his eye on you. He's watching over you, and he is going to protect you. Nothing will harm you unless God allows something into your life as you live in this broken world. And so what we see here is that even the great apostle Paul, okay, the the greatest theologian in the early church, the greatest missionary of the early church, even Paul needed to hear these first three words, do not, four words, four words, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Did you know that the most frequent command in the Bible is this command? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Fear is a reality that grips our lives on a daily basis. We, we, we fear the unknown. We, we fear how relationships are going to turn out. We fear what's going to transpire in the workplace. We fear health concerns and diagnoses on the horizon. And we even fear to talk about the most important things in our lives like Jesus. But over and over and over again in the Bible, we see God saying to his people, do not fear. Like when the people of Israel were coming out of slavery and oppression in Egypt and the Egyptians are chasing them down before they were about to cross the Red Sea and they think they're going to be caught up to by the Egyptians, God says to them in Exodus 14, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And then after they wandered in the wilderness before Joshua was going to lead them finally into the promised land, what does God say to Joshua? Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for I am with you wherever you go. Even Jesus, over and over and over again to his disciples, go read Luke chapter 12. He's saying, don't fear people who can harm your physical body but can't touch your soul. And then later in the chapter, he says, fear not, little flock, because the kingdom belongs to you. God has you taken care of. God loves you. His eye is on you. You do not have to fear what is before you. This is the consistent theme of Scripture. And Paul needed to hear these words because Paul was like, I think we have this like tendency, like we do this in the, in the kind of natural realm even today, but especially with these characters in the Bible, it's like they're almost mythical figures, like they weren't real people like us, you know? And so it's like Paul wasn't like spiritually and emotionally impenetrable, you know? He was a real person. He had highs and he had lows. People wanted to take him out. 
Like this story of Paul in Corinth is a, a story inside of a larger story. And that is the story of the second missionary journey. And we saw a few weeks ago, Paul was, was, had this vision from God to go to this uh, region of, of the world, uh, modern-day Turkey and Greece, known as Macedonia. And so Paul goes to Philippi. And in Philippi, he does this thing. He talks about Jesus. People get upset about it. They drag, like start a riot. They drag Paul. They beat Paul. They imprison Paul. They run him out of town. He goes to Thessalonica. The same thing happens there. Riot. He's run out of the town. Then he gets to Berea. In Berea, he's doing his thing. And the people from Thessalonica chase him to Berea. And they run him out of Berea as well. And so like Paul has every reason to think the same thing is going to happen here. And, and, and I'm going to have to either tone it down or I'm going to have to get out of here. But God comes to him and he says, do not fear. And I just pray that these words, do not fear, will just hit your mind and hit your heart today and begin to release you from the fears that hold you down, that cause anxiety to rise in your heart. And I think why this is so critical and why this is so helpful for Paul, okay, why these words resonated so deeply is because the, the story of Paul in Corinth inside of the story of the second missionary journey is a story that is within the larger story of the mission of God that Jesus had laid out for his earliest followers. And here's what I mean. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, it says at the beginning of this book of Acts, the story of the early church, that Jesus spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. And after he spent that time with them, he gave them this commission once again where he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so when, when, when Jesus shows up, and this is like you want to know if something's from, from God, like does it, does it match up with something you know to be true before that God is revealed? And so, so he hears these words again, I will be with you. Like for the Holy Spirit to come, like that's God's presence. Jesus being present with us by his spirit that emboldened Paul to say, because God is with me, I have every reason to march forward. And, and, and think about this. God's presence is the greatest medicine for our fear, all right? God's presence is the greatest medicine for our fear. Why is that? Because people want to spend time with other people that they, they like, you know what I'm saying, like that they care about. If we can take it a step further, we... And, and, you know, this is hopefully why you're married, and this is, like, hopefully, you know, how you're relating to the people around you, okay? Um, people want to spend time with people that they love. And so when you are experiencing the power of someone's love, 
What that love does is that love emboldens you. It gives you confidence. It, it helps you to believe that you can do things that you wouldn't otherwise believe you can do. And this is what the writer of 1 John says, John, who was uh, one of Jesus' closest followers, he says this, listen, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. See, God's perfect love with us, going with us day by day, reminds us why we sing these songs, reminding ourselves of how great God's love is toward us, how he is with us, how he has made a way, how he is strengthening us for the journey. God is always with us. And his presence is empowering us to stay the course and to follow what he has asked us to do. And so God is saying, look, I am with you. I care about you. You have nothing to fear. I've got you. But not only do I have you, okay, I've got them. All right? So, so, so God's got you, but also God's got them. I'm not only working with you. I'm working beyond you for the sake of the people around you. And this is what he goes on to say to Paul in this vision in verse 10. Look at it, he says, he says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Right? Well, let's, let's read that again. For I have many in this city who are my people. So, so what, like, what does that mean? And, and what is the relationship when, when God says, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I have many people in this city. So when God says, I have many people, he is saying that there are people in the city of Corinth. And by the way, this is what we believe about Boston. Otherwise, we would like check out of here and go somewhere else, all right? So this is why we're like in Boston, as it happened. What we see in Corinth, God do it again in Boston, all right? So, so what, what he's saying is, I have people who have yet to believe in Jesus for salvation, but as the gospel goes forth, as people hear about Jesus, there are going to be people who are not yet God's people who show that God has loved them all along and they are going to become his people as they hear and believe the gospel. God could not say this unless he was and is sovereign in our salvation. All right, and let me just, this is like a little, like or on the heavier theological side of the equation, but it's really good for us to wrestle with these concepts and understand what the Bible is communicating about God and about how he works to show us who he is and bring us into life in Christ. So what God's sovereignty in salvation means is this, is that people believe in Jesus not because of foreseen merit in them or their own ability, but simply because of the sheer grace and power of God. This is where all of these mysterious teachings about 
election and predestination and adoption come into play. And, and this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Let me read them for us. This is what Paul writes there, the same Paul. And he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so to try to, to try to just like help us understand when God is saying, I have people in this city, what that means is God is working beforehand, like even before you were born, God knew you, God had set his love on you, and God was going to make sure that you heard the gospel so that you could respond to the gospel. And why do we, like, you see, like, this kind of blows my mind. And I've, like, read, like, the Bible and, and some things don't maybe seem to match up. Like, how, like what, Tanner, why do you believe this? Well, one, one of the reasons I believe this is because I understand we need God to pursue us like this. And why do we need God to pursue us like this? Because none of us would pursue God if he didn't first pursue us. Like, the Bible says that those who have yet to believe in Christ are spiritually blind. It says that, that we're spiritually dead on the inside. That, that means we do not have an ability in and of ourselves to pursue God and to respond to him apart from his grace showing us that we need him. And so one way to say it is this, if God didn't have people before they were his people, he would not have any people, all right? If God didn't have people before they were his people, no one would become his people. And, and listen, I know this is like deeper end of the theological like pool, and, and you're saying like this is mind-bending, help Help me understand this. Listen, my greatest encouragement to you understanding God's sovereign grace in salvation, just keep reading the Bible. Just, just keep reading the Bible. You're going to see verses like John 5, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We're not able to do it. Or uh, Acts, even in the book of Acts, Acts 2.39, for the promise of salvation is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Acts 13.48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so let, let me just say three other things that we also completely affirm. As we, as we affirm God's sovereignty, like we have to have God bring us the gospel and, and show us that we need him, that we might be saved. There are also three other things that we want to affirm here. Number one, God certainly desires all people to be saved. So Ezekiel 18.32 says that God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. 
God wants everyone. This is 1 Timothy 2.4. For God desires all people to be saved. This also does not negate man's responsibility to respond to God in repentance and faith. Okay, so, so as, as people are hearing the gospel, God shines his light in on their heart. They see Christ for who he is now. And then they respond in repentance and faith. That repentance and faith is a gift from God. This is like the, the tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is spelled out by Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 37. Look at this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All right, that's, that's God's sovereignty on the one hand. All the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Anyone who comes to God, Jesus is saying, let's go, come on. So people are still responsible to respond to the gospel, to respond to the invitation that goes to all people as God is calling people home. Which leads me to the third thing I wanted to say is that this also does not negate our responsibility to tell people about Jesus. And so what some have wisely said, I believe, is that God not only ordains the ends, but he also ordains the means. So, so the end is, God is telling Paul, there are people in the city of Corinth who will believe they are my people. Now the means is, you go and you tell them about me so that they will believe in me. You see that? You say, Tanner, how does this work? This seems pretty mysterious. Absolutely. And it's like, it's not our job to worry about, like, like, who are his people? Because we just love all of our neighbors, and we serve all of our neighbors, and we trust that as we're telling people about Jesus, that certainly some people will believe in Jesus. Our job is to share. God's job is to save. And we see this in Paul's life. He is so committed to the mission. It says that when he shows up, he's reasoning with people. He's, he's entering into discussion with them. It says, I love this. It says that Paul tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, like everyone that he was, he was uh, building relationships with and talking to, he was trying to persuade them, which gives me a lot of hope because it tells me that even the apostle Paul didn't persuade everyone, right? But like that is his aim. That is what he wants to do. He wants to see everyone come to find life in Christ, to experience the joy and the peace and the love that God wants them to experience through Jesus. And so Paul was even, it says, occupied in verse 5 with, with the word. What that means is that he was absorbed in the task. He was completely devoted to like every single day. This is what Paul was about. No matter what it took, if he had to work a job and build tents to get the gospel out, that's what he would do to support himself. Or if when, um, you know, people brought him some finances from a place like Philippi and said like, hey, this is to support you so you don't have to work so that you can be about the business of telling more people about Jesus 100% of the time, then Paul's all about that. But the point is, God, even as he's sovereignly bringing his message of salvation so that people will believe and be saved, He's using people like Paul and people like you and people like me in the process. And so God's sovereign grace doesn't hinder evangelism. It actually propels it. It pushes us out because we have this 
expectation. And so what I want to do is, is this, just to spend a few minutes helping us think about, like, because this is true, all right, because God has us and because God has them, then, then what we can do is what Paul does. We can keep telling people about Jesus, listen, without fear and with expectation, all right? That, that, that's, the, like, that's the, you walk away with anything, like, please walk away with this today, all right? Keep telling people about Jesus without fear, that's possible, and with expectation that more and more people are going to believe the message. And so first, let's just think about our fears. I believe that the number one reason people don't talk to other people about Jesus is because of our fears. And what I would like to do is just try to help you like think theologically about why we don't have to give our fears so much credibility, okay? So like, just think about these different fears. Perhaps you can identify with them. Number one, the, the fear of being rejected. Is it like anyone just like, I don't want to talk about Jesus because I'm going to be rejected. Well, well, guess what? People are not rejecting you. Who are they rejecting? They're, they're rejecting God, Right? They're rejecting the message about. So this is not about you and them. This is about them and God, which is, weighs into the second fear, the fear of offending someone, right? Like the, the fear of offending someone it, it is like it's an understandable fear, but, but really like if, 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 this, if this message about Jesus offends someone, then like, again, that's between them and God. Like, I mean, the gospel, just like it told us, like, hey, your life is not perfect. It's broken. You've rebelled against God. You haven't been living for God with your life. You need to return back to God and have this relationship mended and healed with him. Like, that can be offensive, but that's not because we're being offensive. Like, if, if, if you are unkind in the way that you talk about Jesus, you are contradicting the very message you're proclaiming, Right? So, so, so if we are like really speaking with friends in love, with kindness, we shouldn't have a fear of offending them, even if the message sometimes is offensive. Here's, here's another one. I'm, I'm afraid this is going to hurt my relationship with this friend. And we talked about this before, but if I can just say it again. Listen, if, if your friendship only goes that deep, You know what I'm saying? Like, like how great is your friendship if, if this would, would hinder your friendship moving forward? A fourth one, we have a fear of being a hypocrite, right? Like this is, this is one of the, the greatest kind of accusations against the church. The church is full of hypocrites, right? And so it's like, man, if I talk to Jesus about the people around me, then this, like, if raises the bar in my own life to make sure that I'm actually living out my faith in a way that's consistent with what I say I believe. And this is actually a really healthy fear, right? It's a really healthy fear. And at the same time, this fear isn't saying, like, we all have to be perfect because if that's the standard, then everyone's, like, no one's perfect and, and everyone's a hypocrite, right? So even that fear is not really founded. And then finally, this, this fifth one, I, I, I'm not sure I know enough. 
right? I fear not knowing others. I fear getting a conversation and people have questions I can't answer. And so, like, but, but here's some encouragement. If you are in Christ, like if you've chosen to follow Jesus after hearing the gospel and you're following him with your life, listen, you know everything you need to know based on your own experience, your own story, to be able to share that same message with someone else. And listen, you're, you're never going to, like, know it all. I get into conversations all the time. I've studied the Bible a long time. I've been to seminary. You know, I've got a couple degrees. Like, people ask me questions like, mm, I need to think about that. Mm, I need to go back and study that. Let me, let me get back with you. That's a valid answer. But see, none of these fears should keep us from talking to others about Christ. And so it's God's presence that causes these fears to decrease, but it's then God's power that, that causes us to move forward with expectation and hope and boldness. And so look, look back at, again. Verse 10 is the reason why verse 11 is what it is. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And, and what happens in 11? Paul stays another 18 months. And he keeps doing his thing to tell more people about Jesus. And so listen, this understanding not only frees us from our fears, but it frees us to be bold and to have expectation that some of the people that I'm talking to, that I care so much about, that I love with the love of Christ, some of them will believe the message. Like, like, even this week, think about it as very practical terms. Even this week, as we're going to soccer nights, and listen, we don't, we don't host soccer nights for our city to teach the Bible. In fact, there is no, like, Bible curriculum on the field with the kids at all, right? We teach values-based. It's for the community. There are no barriers for anyone participating, no matter what their background, even religiously, may be. At the same time, wherever I go, whether it's mystic coffee or to have lunch with a friend or to go to soccer nights, I'm thinking, God, there are people that you love that you want me to represent you to them. And so I'm going in and saying, look, I have no reason to fear because God is with me. I have every reason to believe that God is working ahead of me. And so that emboldens me to actually talk to them. Hey, do you have any spiritual beliefs? All right, well, what do you think about Jesus? Like, have you, have you ever read about his life? Have you ever read the Bible? And just to have a conversation and to share the story. And that is happening again and again and again and again. And we're just praying as a church that, that it not becomes a bunch of, like, one-off conversations and, and, and opportunities, as great as those are. But what we're praying, and I'm asking to pray this for our church redemption channel, is that this becomes a culture in our church, a culture where it's like this, this is reflexive. This is what happens because we're so filled with the love of Christ, because we're spending so much with time with God, because we love people so much that we're just consistently telling the story of Jesus to the people around us. So, so, so here's, here's what I want to end with right here. Two questions. How badly do you want to see P3 
people come to Christ? How badly do you want to see people come to Christ? My assumption is that like, if you are in Christ, like, you're all about that. But, but here's a second question. How willing are you to do something about it? It's one thing to have the desire. It's another thing to put feet to those desires. Let's be people that not only want it, but let's be people that do something about it. And as we do, listen, as we do, we talked about that victory. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Let's pray together. God, we proclaim even now that this is your city. God, we are thankful. It's not because we were special. It's not because we were moral enough. It's not because um, there was something that, like, you wanted us on our team because we were so great. Um, no, God, you, you pursued us by your grace and grace alone, as we, we sing about this morning. And so now, God, thank you that you empower us, you are with us to bring this same message of grace and love to the people around us. And so, God, we ask that as we go about our business day to day in our neighborhoods and our workplaces, with our families and friendships, God, that you would continually remind us that you are working ahead of us. And that that knowledge would raise the expectation and raise our confidence to say, look, we are going to go out and we are going to love people with your love and tell them about Jesus because we know you are at work. And so, God, we ask that you would continue to draw more and more people to yourself. God, and we're jealous to be a part of that amazing work of seeing people follow Jesus, even through our witness. So God, help us, we pray in Christ's name.